let's go ahead and uh, jump into this. I'd like to introduce our guest today, so I kind of wrote some things down because <clears throat> Adam gave me a list of things to say and I wanted to read it carefully. Uh, our guest today is Ben Coppedge. Ben is the Reformed University Fellowship Campus Pastor at New Mexico State University. Uh, a, a basically, Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF for short, uh, is our denomination's national campus ministry. So that's actually really beautifully kind of a Presbyterian plug uh, in terms of uh, Ben's position down in uh, at Las Cruces at New Mexico State. Um, we're very excited that Ben is here. I, I'm, I'm very pleased I met him this morning, and uh, it's been great meeting him already. Uh, he's come with his wife, uh, Anna, and their children, Elijah and Addie. So we are excited to have you here today. Thank you for serving uh, serving us this morning. And uh, you guys would welcome uh, Ben Coppins this morning. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I've heard a lot about you in the past year uh, as God has grown this idea into uh, a group of people. And I know for some of you it might be your first week here at Mosaic. So uh, welcome to a church plant. Um, God has a sense of humor, though, because it might be a little hot in here, but where Adam is, it's 120 degrees today, so he's got it a little worse than we do, so you can find some comfort in that. Um, but uh, Anna and I, most of the churches we've been a part of the past 10 years have been church plants, and so this is complete. I, I would be thrown off if everything was up and running and ready to go. Uh, we're more used to uh, having to kind of do improv. Um, but I really am. Uh, Y'all have been an encouragement to so many people you've never even met because we hear the stories. Uh, even just your presence, your involvement, um, the beginning of this church has been really, really neat um, to hear about. So thanks for uh, letting, welcoming us this morning and uh, appreciate Adam trusting <laughs> you with me uh, this first time away. This morning, uh, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 126. I'll explain as we go a little bit about what that psalm is about and why we're looking at it. But the general theme or topic that it's about is joy. And uh, there's three really, really, really simple, short, easy things to remember today about Psalm 126. If you want the kind of joy that we're about to talk about, uh, you have to remember what happened yesterday. You have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. You really do have to be able to read the future. Uh, and as you remember what happened yesterday and know what's going to happen tomorrow, that frees you to actually live today, uh, live in this kind of joy that we're going to talk about. So if you have a Bible or a phone, you can swipe or turn to Psalm 126 right in the middle of the Bible, and, uh, and we'll, get, we'll get busy. This is the word of the Lord. This is a short, brief Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, the people of God, we were like those who dreamed. Then, when that happened, our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. For then they said among the nations, or the people who weren't the people of God, all the surrounding nations, they said, the Lord has done great things for them, his people. So even the outsiders are beginning to realize, God does good things for his people. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev, it's a desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him or his harvest with him. Let's pray again. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open our eyes that we could act truly see and open our ears that we could truly hear 
come and you speak to us. You shepherd us. You teach us. You encourage us, we pray. Do it because you love us. Do it because you love your word. Do it because you're faithful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you will probably remember this, but two years ago, on the morning of March 8th, this is in 2014, a packed to the gills Boeing 777 took off from Kuala Lumpur on its way to somewhere in China. This is a routine flight. It was like the the uh, Albuquerque to Phoenix flight. It was so routine, it probably bored the pilots silly to have to fly this little flight repeatedly all day long. But this flight was filled up. It left in the morning. And the interesting thing about it is that it's two and a half years later now, and it still hasn't arrived. It still hasn't shown up. No one knows where it is. Now you're probably remembering. This was uh, MH370. And uh, all of the people are presumed lost, 239. And to date, about two years after, here's what's happened in the search for that plane. Uh, countries from around the world have sent their ships, their submarines, have repositioned their satellites, have sent uh, their best military experts, their planes, their helicopters. And they have scoured, by this point, over 1.7 million square miles of ocean surface and seafloor looking for this plane. They have spent more than $100 million in manpower and equipment looking for a plane they have not yet found. Um, they have, we have thrown our best technology at it. Cutting edge things that have never been used before are being used to try to find any piece of that plane or any <coughs> evidence of what happened to it. Just a couple of months ago, a piece of debris about the size of this washed up on a beach in Madagascar. And some very present-minded tourists picked it up and said, this looks like a piece of a plane. We should probably tell someone about that. So they took it to the police station. Long story short, they looked at the little serial numbers stamped on the metal. And they, they think that this is a piece from that plane. Now this is, I don't know how far Madagascar is from where this plane lost contact, but it's like maybe an eighth of the width of the globe, a long way away. So two years later, after the most expensive longest search we've ever launched for something, all we have to show for it is a tiny charred piece of metal. That's it. Media people, researchers have called the search for flight MH370 the longest and most expensive search in human history. And I would say it's the second longest search and the second most expensive search in human history. Because I would suggest that the search for joy has been longer and costs more, and we've thrown more technology at trying to get it. I think that's the longest, most expensive, most heartbreaking search. And all we have to show for it, thousands of years later, or in your life, 20 years later, 15 years later, 40 years later, all we have to show for that search that has cost us all that we are and all that we have. Maybe is just a tiny piece of charred wreckage that might just be attached to that thing called joy. But this search for joy for us is very elusive. <clears throat> feels like trying to hold a handful of sand. One second it's there and then it seems uh, to slip away. Leonard Ravenhill is an author, he said, entertainment. He's talking about how in this elusive search for joy, we'll settle for any piece of wreckage from it. 
we've kind of given up thinking that that thing might be there, this enduring sense of I'm okay, it's okay. Um, there's cause to have hope. Believing that maybe that's not there anymore, we settle for the little pieces of records. Leonard Ravenhill says that entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. C.S. Lewis wonders, he said, I wonder if all the pleasures that we pursue in our lives are really us trying to get at this thing called joy. Which means, could it be that most of our lives, most of our every waking moment, is spent trying to get this elusive thing called joy? Uh, most of the apps on your phone might be there because you know you were made for joy and you're trying to find it. The ways you retool your schedule, the conversations you have with your spouse, the disciplining of your kids might be an attempt to get this thing called joy. Switching jobs, moving cities, maybe even being here this morning is the next step on your quest for this elusive thing called joy. So if we're looking for this, if, we're, if what I'm saying is true, if you agree with me, we should probably define what joy is and what it's not. If we're all looking for it, wouldn't it be good to know what it is? So here's a little uh, preacher's game of what it is and what it's not. You've probably heard this before if you've been around the church. But we should distinguish joy and happiness. We should say what joy is not. So here's what joy is not. Here's how... Here's what joy is not. Joy is not something you can marry yourself into. You can't find the right person or the right soulmate, and then you find joy. Uh, you can't hire your way into joy. If you're dissatisfied in your job right now, and you're looking at other jobs, that other job that has your eye that you're trying to get to, when you get it, if you get it, will not bring you the kind of joy that we expected it would. You can't marry your way into joy. You can't hire or interview your way into joy. You can't successfully parent your way into joy. If your kids turn out exactly the way you wanted them to, the way you wanted everyone else to see your kids as, you still, that will not bring you the kind of joy that Psalm 126 is talking about. You can't marry your way into it, interview your way into it, parent your way into it. You can't purchase it. I'd say this is the uh, economic engine of the world is trying to purchase joy. Amazon can't deliver you joy in two days. Uh, you can't diet your way into joy. There's no magic number when the scale preaches back at you that says, you're safe, you're okay now, you've arrived. You can be joyful. You can't eat your way or exercise your way into joy. Joy is not a trait you're born with, like I'm an optimistic, happy person. Joy is not a Myers-Briggs personality. Joy is not a temperament. I'm easygoing. I'm an extrovert. That's not what joy is. Joy is not native to broken human beings. That's why we can't get it in any of the ways I've just talked about. Joy is joy, the way the Bible talks about it. True joy is supernatural. Natural, supernatural. Above natural. Which means it's invasive. Joy kind of joy you want, the kind of joy we were made for, the kind of joy that God is and, and exudes is invasive. It starts outside of you and invades you and overtakes you. It's supernatural. It's a gift of God. It's a fruit of His Spirit's work in your life. That's how joy comes. And that's why the joy that we'll talk a little bit more about in a second, that's why the, the true kind of joy is indestructible. It is not fragile. 
Because it comes from an indestructible God who is not fragile, but who is eternal, who is unshakable, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that's what joy is and is not. Here's how it's different from happiness. Because like I said, happiness, I would say, is a good thing. We shouldn't bash happiness. The Bible is pro-happiness. Tons of songs, the Beatitudes. Happy is the man who walks in the way of the Lord. Happy, happy are those who are uh, hungry, hungry for righteousness. The Bible's pro-happiness, but the Bible distinguishes the two. Happiness, in a sense, happiness is fragile. It's vulnerable. It's, it's, uh, it's susceptible to a million threats. It has a very short shelf life. Happiness spoils really quickly. It's like the produce you buy at the grocery store. It's beautiful on Monday, and it's rotting on Wednesday. Happiness has a short shelf life. It, 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 it evaporates quickly. Some of you were happy two hours ago, and now you're not. Some of you woke up happy, and then the drive in here made you unhappy. Something happened. Happiness is fragile. It's vulnerable to circumstances, to your mood, to things that happen to you. I like to say happiness is the fast food form of joy. It's cheap, it's accessible, but it can't support human life. <laughs> joy, on the other hand, is like the most expensive restaurant in the nicest part of Albuquerque. It's very expensive. It's hard to get, but you never forget it when you've tasted it. You talk about it years later, I will never forget that meal, the way that tasted, or the way that drink was, or that wine was. That's what joy is compared to happiness. Joy is military-grade happiness. Joy is happiness with all of its vaccines. Joy is happiness with a lifetime warranty against damage, theft, destruction, whatever. Joy is happiness with a bulletproof vest. It still lives in this world where there's threats, where there's dangers, where there's changes of circumstances, but it is invulnerable to those things. It perseveres. It endures. It isn't easily broken. And the last thing I should say, and probably the most important thing, is joy is not something that's detached from the person of God. Joy isn't a thing. It's not like, this is Ben. This is Ben's phone. You can have my phone and not have me. But this is Ben and this is Ben's hand. You can't have my hand and not get me with it. You can't have joy and not get the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with it. Because he is joy. And he is joyful. He always has been. He is now. He always will be. So joy is attached at the hip with the God of the Bible. So it's not something that you should pursue on its own. You won't get it. You'll get the charred wreckage. But as you pursue the person of God, as you move near him, as you see him moving near to you first, joy begins to rise. So let's get back to those three uh, things that I was talking about earlier. If you want the kind of joy that these Israelites in Psalm 126 were talking about, you've got to remember what happened yesterday and in all of your yesterdays. You've got to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And knowing the past and knowing the future helps you know what to do with today and live in a joyful way. And when we say joy, we mean the Israelites said, when God restored our fortunes, when he rescued us, we were like those who were dreaming. We were pinching ourselves. Is this real? I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that in your life, but I can remember maybe one or two. A moment where you 
you were just, you were laughing, not because something was funny, but because laughter was the best and most fitting response to just being overwhelmed with joy. It was just this, this giddy laughter. Like maybe you saw your first kid come, or your wedding day, or maybe it was the best meal ever, or just a movie that reminded you of something, and you just laughed, not because it was funny, but because you were overjoyed. Your body had to let it escape somehow. And so it comes out of your laughter. That's what the Israelites in Psalm 126, uh, what they what they said, it was life. <laughs> they were joyful. So this first thing, if you want to, if you want to have this true and lasting joy, you must know what happened yesterday. Here's what I mean, and here's the context of Psalm 126. This was not a happy moment for Israel in Psalm 126. It just wasn't. There wasn't anything happy about it. Uh, the context for this psalm, if you've been around the Bible very long, or you've grown up in church, or even know some of the stories, you might remember this thing called exile or Babylon. Babylon was basically where God. Because of Israel's own sin, God evicted Israel out of the promised land that he gave to them. In a sense, he said, you're living like everybody else, but not the people that I have rescued for myself. My grace is not meant to produce rancidness and wickedness in you. You're not supposed to look like the Egyptians you came out of, that I delivered you out of. And so to discipline them, he evicted them. And he took them from a land that felt safe and predictable and awesome and lovely. And Israel, there wasn't this competition of beliefs or idea. Israel, Israel was everywhere. Everybody believed in God. You went to temple. Like there wasn't this pull and, and push between atheists and agnostic and believers and everything else. It was Israel. It was, it was God's land. <clears throat> he took them out of that and he put them right in the middle of what symbolized the most lawless, godless, people on the face of the planet. He said, here's your new address. And it was like the strip on Las Vegas. Or here's your new address, Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Or here's your new address, some street in Amsterdam. And for the Israelites, were like, what? And they were there for year after years and years and years. A couple generations, like people were, kids would be 40 years old, born in Babylon and had never known what life in Israel was like. That's how long they were there. And they had prayed and prayed and prayed. They remembered, they, they wept by the rivers, remembering what life in the promised land was like. And they prayed, God, deliver us. They repented. God humbled them. And he heard them. This is what they're talking about. After God had began to deliver them back into the promised land, uh, he heard their cries. He, they said, uncle. He heard that. He said, yes, I will show grace to you. I will forgive you. I will bring you back and you will be my people. Uh, they are singing about that moment. Pinch yourself. Can you believe it? He heard us. In our misery, he's delivering us into something else. So that's what life was like for Israel. That's not super nice. This is like the worst moment for Israel's life and what God did about it. That's what they're singing about in Psalm 126. So how did they feel? If, if this is where we were now, if we were living in Babylon in this situation and writing and singing this psalm on Sunday morning worship... What would we feel like? In this psalm, they pray, Lord, restore us like streams in the Negev. That's a desert. Um, people in New Mexico understand the Bible better because we live in a land that looks almost identical to what they experienced. Not much. Well, we all have more water than we do in Las Cruces. But 
Uh, not much water, not many streams in the middle of the desert. So when they said, Lord, restore us, they're saying, at the moment, we feel like the dry arroyo in the desert. It's been months or years since water washed over this. It's sand, it's rocks, it's dust. It's baking in the heat. That's what they felt like. That's what they felt like physically, spiritually, relationally. That's what life was like for them. And they're still praying in that moment. God, restore us. That's what life felt like, felt like for them. This psalm talks about tears and weeping. Right? So this isn't saying everything was going awesome for Israel. All the people got the job they want, the spouse they wanted, the kids they wanted, the future they wanted. That's why they were joyful. It's the opposite. Everything was falling apart. But God was there. And he was faithful. That's where their joy came from. And here's where you see a little bit of a bright spot in this dark scenario. Israel, what they have going for them is they are looking back. They're remembering the past, all of their yesterdays. That's how they begin to see some traction here. Their hearts begin to lift. Joy begins to invade as they remember what God had done in all of their yesterdays. Not just from their birthday forward. But if you're a Christian and I'm talking to you, when I say remembering all of your yesterdays, I don't, mean, I don't just mean your yesterdays, but all of the people who came before you. All of the Davids and Abrahams and Isaacs and Josephs and Adams and Moseses and your grandparents and their that's what I mean. God's faithfulness to you and all of your yesterdays. They looked back and started to remember that God has done great things time and time again. Biblically, he's done great things, and you need to remember this too. You need to read the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament as your stories. Look at what God did when my back was against the wall. The Egyptian army was coming. There was no hope. No escape for the sea. Look what he did in the exile when he delivered these people. They were the reason they were in exile. It was their fault, their sin, their screw-ups. Look how God still responded with kindness and grace. We're supposed to see those things and say, that's my story, too. And look at what he's done in your life, the times you've been stuck, your back's been against the wall. There's been no escape route for you. Provision was lingering. It just wasn't there. Money wasn't coming in. Ends weren't meeting, but he was there. He showed up. He delivered you. That psychological tangle you were in, that depression you are in, you seem to be faithful to you. As you look back to your yesterdays, hope begins to come. You should make a quick distinction here between remembering and nostalgia. Nostalgia is... You're going through your Facebook feed, and it has that little feature now. Three years ago, you were here. It's like ready-made memories brought to your doorstep for you to enjoy. Or nostalgia is you're drifting off to sleep, and you see something, and you remember that time uh, on vacation with this, these friends or that family or your family, and, and you're just swept back. You're along for the ride of nostalgia. You don't have to do anything. You're just taken aback, and it's sweet. It's easy. There's no work involved. Remembering is very different. Remembering is like the work you have to put into to keep in touch with that friend who moved away three years ago. Or your son or daughter who's gone off to college or moved away and had kids. That's what remembering is. Remembering is you taking initiative to go back in time and be somewhere again. And to remember what it was like. 
So remembering takes a lot of work. If you have friends you keep in touch with on the phone, it means rearranging your schedule. It means calling them. It means trying to maintain that, that tie that was there. Reminiscing. Remembering is work. And uh, joy will rise in our lives as we give ourselves to this kind of remembering. Now, the good news is the Bible was given for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is for you to be able to remember. To go back in time and sit and watch and relive and remember. And as we put these things into our lives, what happens is it begins to put preservatives into our memory so they don't spoil. Just like keeping in touch with that friend keeps things a little fresher. Even this psalm, this was supposed to be sung by Israel every year when they went up to the temple. They would sing it just like we say, come thou found. Every year they'd sing this song. They would remember. It was work. Someone had to remember the music for that. Someone had to lead them. They had to remember the words, and they sang it. That's remembering. So Psalm 126 isn't calling you to nostalgia or sentimentalism. It's calling you to remember. You being here this morning is part of your remembering. So the second thing that I said is you, you actually really do have to be able to read the future. You've got to know, you've got to know the future. If you're going to be joyful today, if this kind of joy from God is going to invade you and overtake you. The Bible is not just what I, what I said it was uh, there to help us remember, but the Bible is also there for us to begin to predict what God's going to do next. Take this example. The Bible is like 999 pieces of surveillance video of God rescuing his people in different scenarios. And it's his interpretation of that video, too. You're not just left with the picture. He tells you what he's doing. 999 times. This is what I've done with my people when they dropped the ball and sin. This is what I did with my people when they were in misery, when they were in danger, when they had forgotten me. So that by the thousandth time when it comes along, you begin to learn his reflexes and his character. You say, I know what he's going to do next. I've seen this movie 999 times. I know this God. I know how he works. That's what I mean when I say you have to know tomorrow. What is God going to do tomorrow? With your sin. With your weakness. With your need with your brokenness, with your job, with your family. Is he going to be faithful? Is he going to hear your prayers? Is he going to show up? Is he going to respond with self-sacrificial mercy when he sees you the way you really are? You can predict. The more you know the scriptures, the more you know the Bible, the story of God, the more you can predict what he's going to do. Just like those of you who have been married forever, it gets a little annoying with your spouse, but you can, you can finish the sentence and you know what they're going to do, right? Because you know them. We have to know what tomorrow, how God's going to act tomorrow should be a more appropriate way to put that if we're going to have joy today. Which means you can't be so obsessively captivated by the hard things going on today that your eyes aren't even available to go look towards tomorrow or to go back and remember yesterday takes work. This means us loving each other by saying, hey, do you remember? Or, hey, here's what tomorrow's going to be like. A lot is uncertain. I don't know how God may or may not change your circumstances, but I do know my God. This is what he's like. That's what predicting the future looks like. And we know, 
because Revelation says what the ultimate future, we know where this story ends, this story of the earth, of history, of reality. Jesus defeating and conquering and wiping away for all time death and sadness and sickness and tears and pain. Revelation 21, that's what he says. He says, hey, turn to the, turn to the last page real quick. You need to know where this story is ending. You need to know what the first breath of the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. No death, no pain, no sadness, no regret. That's where your life is going if you're attached to the conquering Messiah. That's why joy can come now. When you remember that's the tomorrow God calls you to predict. The last thing is this, and it's very much attached to what we've just said. There's this metaphor in here. It's kind of weird. It says, because it's agricultural language, and I imagine there's a few of you in here who, that's your, that's your world and your job, uh, but probably not for most of us. He says, um, in verse 5, those who sow plant seeds with tears will reap or harvest months and months and months and months and months later with joy. And then he says, he, or a farmer who goes out to the field weeping, bearing seed for the sowing, he will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Not exactly sure what a sheave is, but let's say it's a bag to carry the harvest in. I think that's what it is. So he has this farming metaphor. Here's the question he asks you. This is kind of a little game question he asks you. If you're a farmer, let's say you have 100 acres, and uh, I guarantee you, in February, hey, if you plant your seeds, water your seed, fertilize it, because this year is going to be the biggest bumper crop you have ever had. I guarantee it, I promise you. If you're the farmer, would that make you want to get up every morning, actually plow your fields, plant your seed, water them, fertilize them, or with me telling you what tomorrow's going to hold? that it is going to be a bumper harvest, would that make you want to say, you know what, I'm just really not feeling it this summer. I don't think I'm going to go and plant. Which would it motivate you to do? Work all the harder? Would it bring joy into your daily labors? Or would it let you sleep in every morning and not really want to go touch the field? If the harvest is predictable, it means all the days that went into making that harvest come become a little more joyful and hopeful because one of the reasons life is so nerve-wracking for farmers now is they have no idea if the grasshoppers are going to eat their crop this year or if it's not going to rain and they're going to have a tiny little yield or if commodity prices are going to switch and they have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars this season only to get to August or September and says, you know what, we have a huge supply of this, we're not really paying much. That's what makes life very difficult for the farmer, especially in the summer months when life's very hard and hot and it looks like things aren't going well. What if that farmer knew, hey, even in the drought, even when I see some bugs on the plants, even when I watch the stock market, it's up now and down then, I know that this is a bumper harvest coming. So I'm gonna go back into the field, and I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna sleep at night. Does this make sense what I mean by remembering your yesterdays, predicting your tomorrows, how that affects today? That's what he means, the farmer who goes out Weeping, which means life is hard, now will come home with shouts of joy because God is faithful and God is gracious.
So that question stands before you. God has told you your future. Again, if you are united to Jesus, everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of you. He lives forever. You live forever. He is joy incarnate. You become joy incarnate one day. But it's starting now. He is righteous. You are now righteous. He is innocent. You, he is beloved by the Father. You are beloved by the Father. He is one with the Spirit. You become one with the Spirit. You, the Spirit dwells in you. All that's true of Him becomes true of you. If that is your tomorrow, my question to you as we, as we, as we go out today is, what difference does it make? Does it? The expert farmer has told you the harvest is coming. Do you go out into the field? Do you go back into your marriage? Back into your parenting and have the hard conversation? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you pray all the harder uh, to bear patiently with that coworker or that boss that drives you nuts? You know the harvest. Does it change how you work in the fields in the summer months when life is hard? Here's where we end. There is a way that all of these themes come together. These themes of, of weeping and tears and sorrow right next to joy and hope. These themes of God's faithfulness and rescuing His people and how that affects us. And the way this kind of ripples up onto your shore this morning, and this is your story, Psalm 126, is because we are people just like Israel. Israel was in exile because of Israel. They blew it. They took all the blessings and graces of God and wasted it on themselves. And we are those people. We are people who, as we said in the confession, we have taken and abused the graces and gifts of God and used it for our own agendas, our own little kingdoms. And so the question becomes, even as God lovingly introduces discipline at different places in our lives, what hope do we have? Well, we, like Israel, can imagine a day where we laugh. And maybe that day is going today, where we laugh with joy. Our tongues are filled with laughter and joy and shouts because you know how God has responded to you because of Jesus. The perfectly joyful one who came and scripture says became well acquainted with your grief. He was known, his nickname was the man of sorrows. This is the infinitely happy, infinitely joyful God who switched places with you and became the man of sorrows so that you might become men, women, boys and girls who begin to look like your God more and more, overflowing with joy. Circumstance uh, immune joy, bulletproof joy, immunized, vaccinated joy, warranty joy. Because on the cross, he took all of the punishment for the reasons that Israel was sent in exile and the reasons that we're on the outs with God. So he takes that so that you might be drawn near, so that you might be the recipient of the grace of the living God, so that you might be the recipient of his joy. Jesus trades places with us. That's the gospel. He takes our sorrows that we might take his joy and live with him forever. Let's pray that we would... Um, awaken to these realities more and more that they would grab hold of us and change us. Lord God, we do thank you 
for our Redeemer, our Rescuer, Jesus. We thank you that though he lived forever with you in the Spirit in perfect joy, there came a day where he took upon himself the form of a servant and he lowered himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might become your beloved, that we might become the righteous ones, the joyful ones, the living ones. Jesus, we thank you for taking upon yourself our awfulness, that we might take upon ourselves your beauty, your cleanness, your life, your goodness. Change us, Holy Spirit. Change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's really been uh, great to be with you all this morning. It's been an encouragement to us. So thanks again for your welcome. Uh, God gets the first word in worship, and he gets the last. He sends you out with a blessing over your head uh, to remind you smile is upon you. It is in Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all now and forever. Amen. Amen.